Wine, Food, Talk. NapaBroadcasting.com. Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. Some would argue that the Napa Valley is at an inflection point. The debate over growth, over the number of wineries and what they are allowed to do, how to define agriculture and how the business of wine can be successfully marketed are all issues that are front and center in both our private and public debate. Sometimes, though, we're all too close to the issues. That's why it's always good to get an outside perspective on our own house. Few outsiders can provide the depth of perspective that my guest, Jim Conaway, can. Jim is, as most of you know, the author of Napa and American Eden and The Far Side of Eden. He's been visiting and watching and writing about the Valley for over 25 years, and he recently wrote an article which he sees as contextual for our current debate about the Jeffersonian ideal of agriculture. We may not always agree, but it is always my pleasure and delight to have Jim Conaway here, and it's a pleasure to welcome him to NapaBroadcasting.com. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be back. Great to have you here. Uh, first of all, you've been looking at the Valley. I mean, it's been about, what, 25 years, if uh, yeah, memory serves, a little since more. the original, a little more since the original book. You keep coming back. You've seen the changes that are, that are taking place. You wrote a book a number of years ago about the last battle that was going on between agricultural, environmental, and some of the other forces here. What are you seeing today as you look around? What do you see that's different? What do you sense that, that's changing here today? Well, I, it seems to me that the, uh, the crisis today is as much to do about a community as it is anything. The, uh, when I did the first book, Napa, I just came to the Valley to, to write a book about what had happened here, and I just fell into the old winery definition fight at the end of the 1980s. So the book, a lot of the book was about that second time. I thought that was my last book, and then a dozen years later, I came out to visit friends, and the Hillside Ordinance fight was going on. So anyway, about the same amount of time has passed, and I've come back now, and it's the uh, the issue seems to be the role of hospitality and the use of wineries as direct sellers to the consumer, and uh, I think the real subject of this is the future of the ag preserve and what what might happen if uh these problems if these that the winery is having selling their wine through distributors and which they say justifies bringing an unlimited number of visitors to a valley that's already somewhat crowded and what the community says about it. it seems to me that the split between the people who live here and the people who make wine here and sell it is more pronounced now than I've seen it, and it's a bigger one. The other part of this that sometimes gets left out of the discussion, perhaps, are the people that come here as visitors and the experience that they're looking for beyond the wineries wanting them to come there and this whole idea of direct-to-consumer sales that you're talking about. There is also something unique to the visitor experience here. If you go to a museum, if you go to a, a great resort somewhere, you don't get to be in contact with the people that created it. You don't get to meet the painters that created masters that are in a museum. But you come to Napa Valley or, or any great wine region, arguably, 
and there is this element of accessibility. You get to meet the winemaker. You get the people that are that that have created the vineyards or whatever it may be. There's that unique kind of of engagement tourism. I like to call it, for lack mm-hmm. of any better description, that is also part of it. And 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 that is something that that consumers are looking for, that visitors are looking for as well. And and in many ways, they are part of the equation too. Oh, they're definitely part of the equation, if nothing else, in the number of bodies. But like every other meaningful experience, it's a complicated one. There's a point where going and meeting the, the guy who made the wine and meeting the vineyardists to find out how it's done, when places get big enough and successful enough, those are not really the people you meet. They're the representatives you meet. They might have something to do with these things, but the vintners, we know the vintners, the vintners that don't make wine anymore. That's what they're called as vintners, but in fact, they're not. They're owners. They hire winemakers to make the wine, and this, at some point, you have to ask yourself, when is a winemaker more valuable as an interface with tourists than as what he's doing to the wine itself? Because we we have now a this hospitality these hospitality issues involve people expecting certain things from wineries they go to without really expecting to understand entirely what goes on it's a tourist experience and a pleasant one but it's not necessarily it's not the same thing as even in back in the 80s as talking to the winemakers or talking to the people in the vineyards and there's you know, there's very little interchange between tourists and the people who do the actual work in the valley, particularly in the vineyards. But it, in creating a lot of the brands, particularly for the smaller wineries, it, the valley is caught up in the same reality as the rest of, of, of the country in some respects in that there is a celebrity culture yes. and that, that the success of a wine brand, the success of a wine goes beyond the objectivity of its quality but it's also about the celebrity of of its creator or the owner or whoever it is in the process, just as we're also seeing with celebrity chefs in all the great restaurants in the Valley. yes, but that's the way – what you're talking about is the way something is sold most effectively. It has really often nothing to do with quality. Look at, you know, celebrity chefs are a good example. Uh, The – look, the thing that's so easy to lose in all this and really have to keep in mind because it's – thoroughly unglamorous when you get right down to it. It's all about agriculture. Napa Valley differs from other places and sort of set the example here by having a an agricultural entity, which is the county. And it was agriculture because the grapes that were produced were so good as what drew people here. Something was proved here that it could be done in the United States. And then it was reproved, and it's still being proved. And if it should, it's all about agriculture. People lose sight of the fact that agriculture really is what it's all about here. And there comes a point where you have enough people and enough wineries to overwhelm the basic concept and to be harmful to agriculture. The the idea that four or five hundred wineries should all have separate, be able to now build separate event centers and have to accommodate larger and larger cl- crowds means that land is taken out of production. 
So you lose agricultural land, you create other problems for that your ancillary to agriculture, including use of water, and it becomes uh, you also have to build places to house and entertain and accommodate people who come. So there has to be a happy uh, balance, and the creators of the Ag Preserve back in 1968 never envisioned, I don't think anyway, that the that the needs of wineries should at some point supersede the needs of the people who live here, who may or may not work there, but who have community needs. And essentially, I think that's the valley seems to be approaching that point now. The difference, though, between agriculture here and, let's say, agriculture in the Central Valley is that the the agricultural product, the grapes in this case, is not an end in itself the way vegetables might be or almonds might be or citrus Mm -hmm. might be. It's what's done with those grapes and the way they're turned into a product that then has to be sold and marketed that's an equal part of the equation. It's different than other kinds of agriculture in that regard. Well, sure, but you didn't, you know, it's not, nowhere is it written that this wonderful product, once it's made, must be, you, you must, we, society, must allow it to be sold in any way that it can in order to sell more of it, regardless of what it does to the community where it's made. The, uh, I just think the, uh, you know, wine is a mysterious subject, and this is yet another of the mysteries associated with it. What happens when it gets so good and so valuable to the people who make and the people who consume it. There are times uh, when I think society has to accept limits on certain things, limits on how much one can profit from a particular entity given the smallness of the place and the concentration of people here and the increasing shortage of water there comes a point where limits have got to be imposed. And it seems to me in this case, there's a good chance, at least many people are arguing for this, that some limits should be maintained on the number of visitors but that, that come to the valley and go to individual places. There's got to be – someone needs to figure out a way to accommodate these people so that the place remains livable and beautiful. Don't forget that tourists, they love the wine, but they all also like, if they're sipping it, they like to be able to look out the window and to look out the window of their cars and see a gorgeous place. And agriculturists essentially maintain that here. Doesn't that argue for, if you look at it from that perspective and, and, and with that concern for the visitor experience, doesn't that argue for allowing market forces to really make the determination? Because it gets to a certain point where if any of that beauty or if what they see out the car window is in any way infected or changed, that it will have its own impact in terms of cutting down on visitors. Well, market forces. Um, Yes and no. People, many people who come don't know what they're looking at. That's one of the reasons they come to Napa Valley. If you lose things by increment and you have, instead of 
a 40-acre vineyard, you have a 10-acre vineyard, and then a 4-acre vineyard, and then a 1-acre vineyard so that people have something to look at. It isn't the same experience. A farming community, if you're selling farming as part in your product, which is in this case is wine, respect the fact that farming is different. Farming requires limits. Farming requires certain uh, approach to use of the land, and it, it, it implies community. I, to my mind, it does anyway. The piece you mentioned that I wrote was about uh, essentially what, what would Thomas Jefferson, third president right. of the United States and an advocate of wine as a, both an equalizer and a liberator of the you know, average family, American family farm, what would he make of the valley today? And I thought it was an interesting uh, exercise, and I got into it a bit, and more than I, th- I found it a lot more interesting than I thought I would, and it offered some insights. I thought Jefferson was, uh, I mean, it's, he was an agrarian. His agrarian dream, granted, it was hard. Uh, it's never really been realized in this country, but it had already been realized in France and Italy and Germany when he you know, visited when he went abroad as the ambassador for the United States. That's where he brought some of these ideas back. And I think Jefferson today would be absolutely astounded, even if he were used to cars and other things, <laughs> by what is what happened here and about what you know what wine has achieved in the Napa Valley. What do you think would astound him the most? Well. The I mean, in terms of the, no, no, the wine and agriculture, putting, yeah. as you say, the cars and yeah, if he are, technology if he, yeah, away. You know, if we can take that little that little fan, fantasy flight, he, I think the quality of the wine, the high quality of the wine, I think he would have been utter. Well, most people are astounded by it, even today. But he would certainly have been. You know, he tried to. That was his whole idea. He had a vineyard planted at Monticello, imported a uh, an Italian vineyard manager. But he never got around to making wine from the vineyard, and the wine, uh, his vineyards faltered. Thomas Jefferson's problem was that he sometimes didn't have time to attend to the things he got started because he got distracted by something else. I think that happened with grapes. Plus, he was a busy person, and the vineyard suffered, and the wine was never made. But uh, I think... He would definitely have liked the quality, and he would have been amazed at what wine is produced here. But he would, I think he would have been dismayed by the fact that his, if he were expecting his own vision to be enacted here, the fact that the what I call the yeoman vintner, he always talked about the yeoman mm-hmm. farmer. He was going to be the savior of the American nation, the small landholder who worked, who worked his land voted was tied to the land therefore he was the sort of the backbone of democracy and he and it, and they built commu- and the communities would be built around this concept of the family farm that was jefferson's famous thing favorite thing and the family farm today really doesn't exist as he saw it and the uh the idea that uh people would be content to live and prosper to a point on a farm making a product in this case it would have been wine plus grain and other things but in 
case of wine that they were, are not satisfied with that, that they're making huge amounts of money on wine, often with small land holdings, and their aspirations are not to be part of the lumpen, <laughs> big surprise, but to be part of what what Jefferson would call an aristocracy, meaning a moneyed class out of reach of most people. Um, I think you could say that that exists today in Napa Valley, and that he, I think he would have been uh, also dismayed that people don't do their own work in the vineyards. That was a big part of his part of his championship of wine as a liberating force for for 18th century Americans, early 18th century America. I mean late 18th century he they don't he would have been i don't think he would have approved of having imported labor do the work i don't think he would have approved of people of absentee landlords uh i think he he, that sort of cuts against what his vision was of of a you know well-rounded nation that was productive and everybody stuck together now because what one of the problems that he saw was that the aristocracy, great things they did, among them the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, but was that there's a huge chasm between the small, relatively small aristocracy and everybody else. And he would have the fact that he would come back, you know, hundred years later and find the same thing in place here. I think he wouldn't have been too happy about that. Well, the difference. That's an improvement over his time is that the people that are working or a lot of the laborers and a lot of the people that are working at the wineries have the privilege of voting, which they didn't have unless they were the landowners in Jefferson's time. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But they don't they don't have any of the economic wherewithal. They are they are employed. They're servants, essentially. They're paid to do what they're doing and they don't have any say in the direction, really, that. Uh, that the valley goes. You're right. If they live here, a lot of the people you're talking about, they may vote, but they're va- voting in Contra Costa or some other place. Uh-huh. They're not voting here. So that's in terms of how that affects the valley. It's, it's negligible. And most of the people who, you know, so many of the people who work in the wine industry are, live elsewhere. But the di- the other difference is that it is a business. I mean, you talk about it as, as the wine industry. I mean, it is it is a business, and people are in it for, even if it's not to make vast sums of money, I mean, there are people that are very passionate about it, people that, that you and I know, that their goal, or at least their, their stated goal when they set out, was to make great wine, or because it was a second career, or it was a passion that they had. It wasn't just necessarily the economic motive, but they did want to succeed at it. They didn't want to lose money at it. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's harder and harder to do, given a how competitive the business is, and and the other part of it, which you touched on, is that I won't say everybody, but a large number of them are making really good quality wines, which makes it even more competitive. Yeah, well, or the people they hire are making right. really uh, good quality wine. That's true, but we're, we're t- it's kind of apples and oranges. People who make a lot of money elsewhere decide they want a winery. And then label their own label, et cetera. That's a common thing now. That's fine. They and they can do that here and still uh, conform to the laws and of the of the agricultural preserve. What they what they are not allowed shouldn't be interested in doing because number one, it isn't necessary. 
is making huge amount of money by increasing the investment, changing the nature of what they're doing, or building, going outside and starting another winery in the same place and expanding that way. That's a different idea. That isn't an agricultural concept. That's a corporate concept in terms of growth, ever-increasing profits, uh, not supporting your family, not supporting the community, but essentially in the case of Napa, you take advantage of the location because it's so the product is so valuable, and now you you can also enhance further your investment because of the traffic that is drawn here, because uh-huh. of, of the reputation, <clears throat> and for the other uh, what you said, the celebrity of it. So there's a li- it's a little bit more complicated. And again, I say go back to agriculture. The more of this you have, by definition the less agriculture you have. You have to take land out of agriculture to accommodate these changes. There's no way around that now. Napa's too small. That's You just can't do it. You can't have it with everybody going, you know, forever, ever expanding. Clearly, there have to be some limits. The agri-reserve uh, imposed limits, the old winery definition, however imperfect, imposed limits. But now... People want those limits lifted because they don't want just to make good wine. Let's be honest about this. They want to make good wine and make a f- another fortune. That's an entirely different ball game, particularly when the community as a as a whole is affected by it. There are a lot of small wineries, though, and and if you talk to a lot of owners of, of small wineries and small vineyards, that are not making a fortune, but that are working really hard to make what they're doing a success. No. They don't. They do want to make money. I mean, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from that. But on the other hand, it's not as easy as it used to be. Distribution is tougher. Getting the yeah, product out there, it's all more difficult. Well, then, I mean, that's what laws are for. That's what lawmakers are for. That's a problem that can be figured out politically. It's the bigger guys that I'm talking about. Small wineries should be allowed to do that up to a point. But there's a limit, and uh, you know, a small wine. If you, in a, you know, if you have, if you stay close to the tenants of the of the ag preserve, if you're, if you want to make money out of tourism and instead of out of your product, and you're using the product as a platform to draw people in for other things, that isn't that's a deviance from what the ag preserve originally was supposed to stand for, which was agriculture itself. Right. But what we're seeing is the desire to draw people in, not necessarily to make money off of uh, of another product or a subsidiary revenue stream, although there is some of that, uh, no question, but to draw people in to sell more wine, to sell more of the, the, the agricultural product. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the big American question, isn't it? How much is enough, you know? Uh, how much... At what point do you you do you develop something to the uh, that it loses its original essence and becomes another thing entirely? You and an awful lot of money is made in that in that hinge there between it being what it was before, it being more than it was before. More and more money is made. More and more people come. More and more money, and all of a sudden, the hinge collapses. And people look around and say, why am I here in the midst of this turmoil? You know, this isn't really what I was thinking about when I thought 
of agriculture and fine wine and guys who are and women who are really into it they exist here the little guys are at a real disadvantage because of what is happening if you're a little guy that got in late you can't really expect the rules to be changed now because you're on board and the ship is sailing uh, I think that's the way I would react to if they're recent arrivals. But sure, they have to be able to exist. But limits still have to be imposed. It's not a God-given right to do this. One of the things that we're seeing in response to that is that little guys that came in, and, and when we say little, we're, we're talking about the smaller wineries, the smaller vineyards. Some of them are really small, some not so much, that if, in fact, they feel they came in late and they're facing some of these problems, particularly distribution problems or what have you, they're selling out to the the, core, the yeah. really large corporate players, and yeah. we're seeing some examples of that take yeah, place. I know. I deplore that. I, I deplore that. It's kind of inevitable, I suppose. Uh, you know, as I say, you and I were talking earlier, I said this. There's a point where the concentration of money gets so large that it is irresistible in in a democracy in our democracy and that's what i fear napa can't really can't really afford that it's true that uh, if there were more space here other things could be done but there isn't napa valley is small it's finite and in the end you know you everything you think about write about that has to do with wine, drinking wine, tasting wine, everything. There, you, Some way has to be found to accommodate these what are perceived as needs without taking land out of production, without essentially destroying land, without what we are – that terrible euphemism, let, unimproved land means land that has not, not been developed. And essentially – it was improved, and it was unimproved when it was built on. And Napa doesn't have much of that. It doesn't have any – has none to spare. I mean, it has none to spare. And people who uh, – people just have to, I think, have to realize that. There are certain enterprises, there are limits. There are no limits to how many movies can be made, but there are limits to how much land, particularly land like this, as blessed as this is. And – it will run out. It's already running out. And, you know, Napa has, has already authorized the production of more wine in this valley than there are grapes to supply. Right. So, you know, that is a very sobering situation if you think about it. I want to come back to a phrase that, that you used a couple of times, and, and you've referred to community and the impact on community. Defi- how do you define that? What, do you, what are you looking at when you talk about community? Common goals, common uh, commerce, meaning human commerce, seeing people, having neighbors, voting. Uh, it's a commonality of interest and, uh, and an involvement in one way or another in the community and a dependence upon the, in, either directly or indirectly on the livelihood, on the continuing livelihood of and vitality of the community. Now, I think what you're asking about, what goes against that? A couple of things. If everybody 
who does the real work in a place can't afford to live there, then they're not part of the community. I don't care what you say. They are. They come in from elsewhere. They don't vote in that place. They vote elsewhere where they happen to live if they vote. They don't um, share the same interests. Also, many of the houses that they might be living in are occupied by people who have a lot more money. A lot of them don't live here either. So you have vacant houses. You don't have people sitting on board. You don't have people taking part in a real way in community life. That, that is going to be elsewhere. And schools suffer for, for that reason because the people, uh, the kids are not there in number to go to the schools of, of all different classes. That's what America used to be. You used to go to school, you know, when I was a kid. Sure. You had, you know, wealthy people, poor people, everybody in between. That that's that has changed too. That's part of community education. You know, schools big deal. Uh, but I think mostly it's a shared sense of it's a sense of commonality. And if you don't see someone, if you don't know someone on somewhat meaningful level, if you're sort of if there's a kind of overclass and you're looking up at all these activities, but you're not part of it, even though you're a perfectly fine person you know that you have a job or whatever there is it it's a it's a gulf that's increasingly hard to bridge in many ways i mean that's reflective of and and this is beyond the scope of of us to solve but it's certainly a larger conversation about america today well it is that's i've said so many times i mean i love i've been coming to napa a long time now even back when i was at stanford i came up a little bit but the I've realized that, you know, Napa is in some ways a kind of very uh, highly embellished, precious little cameo of America. Things happen here, but they happen related to money now, but they happen faster than they happen elsewhere. And celebrity, you know, making it in America, all that, uh-huh. it's all here and it's all accelerated. And wine is in a one of the things I – fascinating to me about wine is that it is an accelerant i don't mean it gets you you get tight drinking it that happens too but you get it it, it's a way of accelerating things and you know go back to jefferson he thought he believed that too because he believed that wine uh enhanced conviviality without intoxicating people talked community again they had ideas ideas were brought up they discussed them and it was a it was a part of his enlightenment project, this whole idea. Mm-hmm. That's how people. And now you don't have these kinds of conversations. You have, you know, that involve everybody in the community. You have this one. You have a different level that is is unapproachable in a meaningful sense by the average person. I think. The other thing that makes it more complicated is it comes back to what you were talking about before, vis-a-vis community and land, that because the land is so precious, that so little of it is available for housing stock, which is creating the need to import more and more workers and more and more labor for wine, food, hospitality, and all the other businesses of the valley from elsewhere. No, but I think you've got it backwards. I think you have to import all these people from elsewhere because there's so much need, there's so much ancillary activity related to the fine wine that makes these people necessary 
to come. Of course, you would have to bring some people in from outside, but in the uh, you don't. I think you know farming. You can actually farm. You can make hundred and fifty dollar cabernet without having a, a huge workforce. That's not really what it's about. It's about people who are drawn in uh, and who provide a lot of money doing different ancillary things. They're not. They're not. They're not. Uh, they're not absolutely necessary for the community to function as the community was at one time and a lot of they know, may be necessary for you to get 150 dollars for that bottle <laughs> however well that doesn't seem to be a problem <laughs> but that is because i mean we're joking about it but that is because of of the ancillary things in many ways because of the marketing the cachet all those other okay. all those other parts of the equation but they were getting 150 dollars a bottle before the distributors were all you know, to say, oh, this is not our fault. We now have to do this because the distributorship is, system is broken down, which is a stupid system. Everybody agrees right. with that. I don't know why that can't somehow or other be fixed, but you can't blame everything on that. I mean, the truth of the matter is that those— But that has to be fixed on a, a yes, federal level, yes, not yeah, a local exa- level. No, exactly. But, the uh, you know, people were making money, really good money, on in— in Napa in the 80s, you know, in the late 70s. So it's not, it's all, again, as said, it's a matter of degree. There should be, you know, the well-rounded, in the Jeffersonian sense, the well-rounded person. This would be good coming from Jefferson, who's rich, but has limits on his expect or her expectations. And particularly in some cases, so what you would say, but in agriculture, particularly in a place that has is rare land as Napa Valley does people are not heedful enough of this need to have some restraint you couldn't get away with things that are done here in in the Madoc in Bordeaux or in Germany parts you know you just can't take land out of production easily there and you can't in Napa Valley either although right. it can be it's about that's about change I think uh, I fear and the the ag preserve, you know, I keep coming back to that, but Napa Valley had the first ag preserve in the United States, and it was published. It was uh, passed by a board of, of all Republicans in back in the '60s who said there should be limits on this, and you, you know, you can you can't build on a, unless you have a certain amount of acreage, can't build a house on it, and it if that hadn't been done, I don't know what would have happened here. What do you think the impact now is of of the current fight that's going on, the fact that these issues, all the things that we've been talking about, are bubbling to the surface? I mean, I, I'm not sure that they've reached critical mass yet, but they're getting closer mm-hmm. in terms of the debates that are taking place here. Is is it your sense that, that something will come of this at this point? Or that it will continue to be business as usual, and you you have an interesting perspective because you're not seeing it and dealing with it every single day. No, it, obviously it's not going to be business as usual because business as usual is not satisfying people. They want business as extraordinary, and again, money concentration at some point is irresistible. Uh, I think I think the community people who are not directly invested in this uh, would want to see limits on wineries. I think they really do, and on you know event places, extra buildings built elsewhere, they in and in the cities too, in the towns, townships, they're also opposed to it. People, 
that I, who I talk to are just are saying that's enough, which is not acceptable to a lot of the people in the Vintner community. Right. But that I'm not sure that's the attitude in the cities. I mean, in the cities. Well, no, no. The, well, right. the, the city. I'm talking. I'm talking about some of the smaller towns. I know in Yontville that was has been the attitude for a long time with those people who just live there. But that's kind. Of, Yontville is kind of beyond that now. But the. I mean, Yonville is kind of ground zero of much that we're talking no, about. No, that's what I mean. I'm not sure. <laughs> Pretty soon, tourists will be going to look at locals, you know. Here's some <laughs> – the, the, uh, anyway, uh, by, you know, it's back to – the whole idea is that the uh, – not. I think the status quo probably will not hold, and if the past is prelude to the future, the why the – wineries who want to expand will get their way but it's going to be a big fight should it seems to me it will be anyway that um to keep to keep the current limits on a lot of them and to try to keep some sort of sense of balance it's interesting to look at it in the context of the competition and the fact that there is an awareness i think even among those that are seeking expansion and, and, and are looking at all of these issues, that there's a lot of other places that are sort of lurking out there. And that if, if, if for some reason it all goes too far or it goes upside down because the battle becomes too ugly or something happens, that there's a lot of other candidates waiting in the wings. And I think that's part of, of the realization as well. When you say candidates, you mean, you People, mean places, places, locations. Paso Robles, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, pick sure, one, but Sonoma next door. But they don't have quite the lo- – well, Sonoma does. They don't have quite the location that Napa and Sonoma have being so close right here on the on the bay. Uh yeah, the, the competition, but the, there's. I think at this point, frankly, Napa is competing with itself, uh, and I think there's some dis- harm is being done. I li- I don't live in Napa. I live on the East Coast, right. but I've spent a great deal of time here, and and I'm quite fond of the place. And it's surprising how many times I hear people say, "Oh, I've been. I went to Napa, and I could, you know, with so many people there, I couldn't move around. I just, you know, they don't say I don't want to. I won't go back, but they, it, they're. I'm just saying this in a cautionary way. I don't have anything absolutely to back it up with, except what I'm hear from people I talk to who have no inter, no, you know, investment in the wine right. industry, but are interested in wine. There is a there is a fatigue now, uh, I think, and I think that's very dangerous to the valley because, as I was talking about this hinge effect, there is a point where it goes over, and if it loses its cachet, you you will still get people will still come to visit, but they may not be the people you want to come visit. Uh, I think that is. I think that's a danger. I think the level lowering the level of tourism, the interest. In, what people are actually looking for could very well happen. Maybe you know, there you can think of all sorts of things, but wedding venues, stuff like that, become the real reason people come here, not the wine. That's a possibility. And then you could have you could just have unlimited places, but right. you wouldn't I mean, have the same place. Right. I mean, the effort is made constantly on the part of people that that work on these things to bring a, a higher level of tourist here. 
that more overnight guests, the average room rate, I think the average room rate in Yountville now is 400 and something dollars, and a lot more effort to bring international visitors in, a lot more effort to really focus on the kind of tourism that is arguably more economically beneficial. Well, what you're talking about is so-called high-end tourism. Mm -hmm. High-end tourists are more critical of ambiance than are the others. Those are the to- exactly the sort of tourists who care about what a place looks like, what it feels like, the uh, the the attitudes of the locals, how people react, and don't forget, high end tourism is a, uh, one of the most valuable commodities. Is uh, verisimilitude, reality, you know. That is really important, and if if Napa were to lose that, and suddenly they, this would take it would be just all obviously a carnival atmosphere. Those are exactly the sorts of tourists who are going to stop coming here, not start coming here in greater numbers. All, you know that's what they want. They want authenticity. Authenticity is not what you get. You get beauty and you get good wine, but in an awful lot of the venues here, you don't get authenticity. It's the smaller places you mentioned is where you right. get that. So there is a there's a war going on here. The vendors sh- sh- should not all be on the same side, and they're not. I think but, they're not because I mean. because there's a real split here, and uh, it's interesting what you say the f- potential of the big boys to sort of turn the, the fire hose on the small guys and then be able to buy them out if they can't keep up. I mean, that's that's a draconian idea, but it's certainly quite a real one, I think. I mean, it comes back to, to your point about it being a kind of microcosm of so many things that are going on in the broader economy in the country. No, that's and, the and fascinating thing about it. Who would, have, who would have thought in the 60s this little place would take on this kind of uh, – this kind of this odd concentration of national obsessions and fascinations you know it it was it's really quite extraordinary and i've thought about that a lot you know i'd like to write about that more because it's become a kind of uh you know a magical kingdom in its own right and the, but the towers are getting too tall <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, it's still believable as a manage, magical kingdom but it could, if it loses that sparkle, if the fairy dust stops coming down, you know, people. I'm telling you, these things happen very quickly. People say, "Oh no, we're not going there. Look, it's jammed up." You know, we're going to go to Passarolas or wherever you're talking, or probably Sonoma is more likely. Uh, so, it is that very fine line between exclusivity and coming too open and too accessible in, in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. two, uh, it's how much authenticity you can manufacture. Well, you can, yes. <laughs> that's and, that, and that's the danger. Uh, you know, authenticity is very hard to manufacture. <laughs> it often takes collapse and starting over again. And that's not anybody here wants to see that, I don't think. You're going to write another book about it? I'm seriously thinking about it. Well, I hope that uh, if you do, you will uh, come back and talk oh, more I, about it. I love you. And, and, and thanks very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Jim Conaway, thank you so much for being here. Okay, Jeff. You're listening to NapperBroadcasting.com.